today we're going to be talking about the ministration of reconciliation and what that is. Now we have seen the ministration of reconciliation and defined it in church, uh, in the evangelical church, uh, in a great way along the lines of uh, God brought reconciliation between us and Him because we were guilty and our guilt had to be removed and now we don't have to feel guilty anymore. We weren't loved, but now we are loved because Jesus Christ came and took away our sin. And we've defined reconciliation from the platform of uh, a law that's broken. And then once that law is broken, then you are guilty before God. Now reconciliation has to take place. And we've, we've had a law-based definition of reconciliation instead of a grace-based definition of reconciliation or a family-based or a restorative justice-based definition of reconciliation. Now, I want to explain to you those words. You might say, Barry, what does restorative justice mean? Uh, you know, we find in, uh, I would say in theology, in the way people look at the justice of God, two, two, two main streams. The one is punitive, meaning that it is a justice wherein you have to be punished. In other words, if you have broken the law, you have to be punished. And it is almost like uh, somebody that gets a speeding ticket and now he's got to go and pay the ticket. And before you have paid the ticket, uh, there is no reconciliation between you and the government or you and the traffic department. You first have to pay the ticket. And then whosoever pays that ticket, doesn't matter who it is, once somebody has paid it, then you have now been restored and then you can have peace and you can feel loved and protected by, that, uh, by the traffic department as pertaining to road safety and, and all those kind of things. But should you stand on the wrong side of the law, then you would feel, well, I owe them something. So whenever I see a roadblock, a traffic stop or something like that, and there's an officer, then fear gets into your heart because you know that this system is now actually against you because you stand on the wrong side of the system. And we've taken that legal system and we've tried to define the reconciliation that there is between God and man as well as the reconciliation between nations, uh, between uh, Jew and Gentile or Israel and Gentiles. We can actually not say Israel and Gentiles because this is a different uh, way of looking at Israel. But we cannot say that we've tried this to, to, to use the law and define this unity and this reconciliation where a law-based definition of reconciliation is very weak and it doesn't have power to really communicate what God has done for us. Now, I would acknowledge that in my early days as I got into the message of grace that I did have a view of reconciliation wherein I would take a passage like what we're going to look at here, uh, where, uh, verse 19, this is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. I'm just quickly reading it to, reading it to you, but we're going to go through the whole chapter anyway. It says, To witness that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us this word of reconciliation. And what I understood by that was, that there is reconciliation now because God has decided not to punish me. That's how I saw that. I saw that that scripture simply means that God decided not to impute my trespasses unto me, meaning he is saying, well, I'm not punishing you, I'm punishing someone else. Now that is a very difficult thing to understand within family logic or within a relationship-orientated life where you've got relationship with somebody. Because it will boil, boil down to the following. Uh, imagine, uh, I've, and I've preached on this many times, but I just quickly want to mention this. Imagine I, I break the law and now the relationship that I have with the judge, imagine how cold that relationship is, how powerless that relationship is. The power of that relationship is not the love in the heart of the judge. But the power of that relationship is found in the law, in obedience uh, or disobedience and so forth. And that the judge would have to find a way according to the law to get me free. And the only way uh, that would be is to say, well, 
okay, uh, someone else has to pay, someone else pays, and the judge lets me go. It doesn't talk about relationship. It doesn't have the idea of a father and a son. It doesn't have the idea of restoring. So uh, when we talk about a punitive, a punitive system wherein we've got penalties, substitutionary atonement, it's a big word for simply saying that the father thought that he didn't want to punish you because punishment had to take place. Therefore, he punishes Jesus. And then he punished Jesus and now he lets you go. Uh, th- that doesn't really talk about a justice where things get restored. It is a justice where something gets paid. And once something is paid, how do you forgive inside the parameters of payment? Meaning the following, if I owe somebody $100 and I don't pay him, and then the judge says, you shall pay him, and I can't pay him, and somebody else pays, and once he has paid, then the person that received the payment says, well, I forgive you now. How can that be forgiveness? That is not forgiveness. It is payment. Now, Jesus come to forgive, to set free. So when we talk about reconciliation here, we want to talk about a restorative restorative justice, where justice is not defined by the law, but where justice is defined by the love of God as what I would look at my child. If I look at my child and I look at justice towards him, to me it is just if he has peace. To me it is just if he feels loved. To me it is just that, uh, that, that he is cared for. To me it is just that he is healthy and uh, that everything that I've dreamt for him takes place in the very same way with God. The justice that God has is connected to his original plan with man. And the original plan that he had with us was a family. It was to live with us, to be amongst us, to fellowship with us, uh, to, to be here with us. Uh, the, the, the whole story, if we look at Genesis, for instance, uh, Genesis, we've read Genesis in such a wrong way. And some of you might say, oh, Bertie, you, what you're about to say or what, you, what you're going to say, some will say is, this is not right. But please just hear me out. Genesis is not a scientific account of how the world was created. Genesis, I believe that Genesis was written to explain to us what God would come and do in Christ, or what God has promised the world. That is what it's all about. Genesis is all about God creating a place where He can dwell with His people. It is family language. Now, if you come to my house and uh, you say to me, Wow, Bertie, you know, look at your house, uh, look at what you've got here or whatever, and I say, yeah, thank you, and you say, well, it's nicely decorated. It's like when people come to my house, they always say, when they see how it's decorated, they say to me, Bertie, that's not you. That's your wife. And I say, well, it's true. So uh, if they come to my house and they, will, and they would look at, at where we stay, not that we've got the fanciest place, but they would want to know what is the story of this house. And they wouldn't want to know uh, how many cubic meters of concrete I've put in the foundation. Neither would they want to know uh, 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 how long it took to build and how many bricks is in the building and where did the clay come from and so forth. They would like to know when did I move in here? How did I get it? Uh, they want to hear the story behind it all. How would it, they don't want to hear a house story. They want to hear a home story. How did this become your home? And I believe in the same way with Genesis. When we read Genesis chapter 1, it is not a house story. It is a home story. It's a story of how God came and how he actually built a temple. And and this temple that he built in Genesis, uh, I mean, the last thing you always put in the temple is the image of the God. Uh, You know, so and then he came and the last thing he puts in this temple then would be the image. And then when he rested... When God rested of all his work, meaning he's rested now in building this temple. And now he can actually live here and dwell with man here. And his presence can be here. And then he, through that temple 
And through that image that he's got there, he can establish his kingdom and his rule and his way of doing there, where he can fellowship with his people. That's the Genesis story. And if we look at Genesis 1, for instance, and we want to use it to try and determine in how many days the world was made and all those kind of things, you are absolutely abusing the text. Uh, If you use the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, the, the story of Noah and the flood and all those kind of things, all of those things point to Christ. Uh, in the last days will be as in the days of Noah. When we, look at, when we look at Genesis, we find that Adam was a type and a shadow of the one to come, the Bible says. So we have to, when we define justice, we have to look at, at what is justice inside this kingdom. And justice inside this kingdom would be that God has a place where he can fellowship with his people, where he can give his life unto his own beings and basically to a certain degree multiply himself or actually better words would be live in beings wherein he's sharing his life with them. And justice would have to find its definition in that. And that's why when we look at the justice of God, it is all about God bringing forth what he has dreamt from the beginning. Because if this plan that he's had, something that would want to derail it, what would justice be? Justice would be to take out of the way what destroys and to bring restoration unto whatever was harmed, uh, to bring restoration back to the original. And that's how we see uh, restoration, and that is basically the foundation from where we're going to define reconciliation. Reconciliation should be defined inside a home term and not a house term. Reconciliation should be defined inside of balancing the thing out to what it's supposed to be, uh, and not a in, in a law perspective. Sadly, and I've seen it, <coughs> I've seen it in my own life. Well, I say sadly, well, I've started out, and I think I've missed the point a little bit here in the beginning to finish the point I try to make. Um, I've started out with a penalty substitutionary atonement theory of atonement. And I, I, I mean, I did get to learn more about God because I had a completely law mindset. And then I had a mindset which says, well, at least God is not angry with me anymore although he had good reason to be angry with me, wipe me from the face of the earth, destroy me because I had uh, inherent sin. Uh, He had the right to do that because he's a holy God. In the presence of a holy God, there has to be a holy law and punishment according to that should you transgress his law. I believed that, and then I also believed, and that is what 99% of the church today basically believes, uh, or of the Western church anyway, and what, what I then heard was that Jesus took that punishment. And I was so glad because now I know, well, I'm not under the law anymore and God is not angry with me anymore. And that gave enough room in my mind for light to enter into my mind that I could see a bigger picture. So if people believe in the penal, penalty substitution atonement theory and take it to the degree where they actually then powerfully go and declare that people are innocent, they are forgiven, and also fo- and so forth, I would say, well, I can still see that a little bit of good can come out of that, but only to the point wherein you can go to the next step and actually deny that the whole foundation of that uh, uh, theory uh, and get to the family-based logic of this. And that is the foundation we're going to use today to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, um, I want to go a little bit into the history of 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, when we read from verse 1, we see that Paul is actually talking about the immortal body, talking about being clothed with immortality. And he says that this, this immortality, this glorified body, where there is no sin in that body, meaning no weakness, but where there is the fullness of God, wherein God is all in all and all those things, was the very thing that God had in mind for us. And we read this in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. It says, 
Now he that has wrought us for the very same thing is God, who has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. So um, the very thing that God has gotten a hold of us for is the resurrection, is to have us, uh, is to reconcile man, to balance man out, if you want to call it like that, with what he has in his mind for us. And if you reconcile books, you, um, I'm not very good with that kind of a thing. Uh, it, it, I get people do that for me. But the way I understand it is that it must balance out. So the, when you look at the income and what was given out and what's left over and all those things, it must balance out. And, I think, and then you say these books are reconciled. In other words, when we look at reconciliation between man and God, we also look at a place. Um, I know that's an accountant term that I'm using here in reconciliation, but I think it works well. Where we see that man is now weighing up with God, meaning that the very life of God is now also in man. Where we can actually say that God has come and exchanged, to use the Greek term there, exchanged his life with our lives, so that we can now also have his life. It's got nothing to do with punishment. It's got nothing to do with an angry God. It's got nothing to do with people that feel guilty before God all the time. Do you know that most of the Jews never felt guilty before God? They felt blessed before God. They felt that they the people of God. They didn't walk around with guilt. So you couldn't come to them. I mean, they even went to Jesus. Jesus went to the Jews and said that... um, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they would say, but we've, we've never been in bondage to any man. What are you talking about setting free? We've got Abraham as, we've got even God as our father, the, the, they said there. And then Jesus said, well, if you had God as your father, you would have done, you wouldn't have wanted to kill me. And you would have accepted my words. So they didn't walk around with a guilt in their heart all the time. Yet in our church terms, what we, we, the way we see salvation is, well, I've, I've been guilty all the time and now since I've been guilty all the time, now I'm not guilty anymore because Jesus took away my guilt by pu- being punished for me. Therefore, I can come based on the punishment Jesus ha- has done and now I can come and I can live in the bliss of the judge is not angry and that's how I see salvation basically. But that's not what Jesus come to do. The Bible, in the Bible we clearly see that God knows that the reason why we sinned is because of the weakness of our flesh. And that the law was given for the reason that man would see that by his own works he can never be saved. Actually it was to make our weakness come forth more. So how can God, who gives the law in written format for the purpose that sin must multiply, judge us now for the wrong things we've done. If he's put the Jewish people or Israel under that law, it just doesn't make sense. It is contradictory. These things has to make sense. It has to make sense. So here he comes in 2 Corinthians 5 and he's talking about the restorative justice of God where God's justice is saying, it is not just that my people are dying, I'll come and I will take what is taken that has taken them captive away from them and I will come and I will bring them life. I will restore their flesh. I will take their flesh, sinful flesh, and I will take it upon me. I will die it away. I will bring a brand new belief. I'll create a brand new man. And then to those who believe in me and expect me, I will appear to them a second time but without sin and grant them an immortal glorified body so that God can dwell and live with his people. You know, I've, I love to watch uh, debates on, on the internet. And some of the debates that I like to watch is debates between atheists and uh, Christians. And if you go and look at those debates, you would find that the thing that most of the atheists are rebelling against, some of them are just blatantly hating God. 
uh, and say that even if you can prove God to me and prove all these things to be true, I will still not have to believe in Him and I will still not believe in Him because why will I now believe in a God that wants to come and, and be good to me or something like that? There are some people that are just plain forward not interested in God. But most of their arguments is from the illogical understanding of a penalty substitutionary atonement or reconciliation where reconciliation is made on the foundation of a God that basically created a heaven, created a hell and then created a people and then these people if they would obey him he will take them away from the earth and put them in heaven and they didn't even ask to be there and if they disobey him then he will take them and burn them in hell. And that just doesn't make sense to people. It doesn't even make sense to you that's listening to this outside of a penalty substitutionary atonement theory. You know, only you have to develop that penalty substitutionary theory in order to justify that belief system of uh, an angry God that will continually keep people alive and basically have them tortured in hell. Since God is the only being that gives life, who and what keeps people alive in hell if they are burning there in a fire? Now, I don't want to talk about hell today, and um, I do believe that there is hell. Uh, I do believe that people, not, all people will not be saved. But to define it like that, what does it bring? It brings an anger inside of the people, of, in, inside normal people. And they say, well, I cannot entrust my life unto such a being. Yet, as I watch that debate, I just want to, I wish I could get in there and just add something in and say, listen, you know, the, you, the, what you are attacking <clears throat> with your uh, theory of evolution or with saying there is no God is a straw man. It is not true. Uh, that is not what Christianity is. You are attacking a false view of true Christianity. True Christianity is all about a God that made people to have a, and to, to love on them, to have a relationship with them, to bless them with life and what is good. And then an enemy came in and an enemy came to destroy them and harm them. And now God comes onto the scene in Jesus Christ and he is now bringing forth justice and he says that my people has been made for life and now I've come to restore them. That is what this is all about. <coughs> Excuse me. So the restorative justice of God is the foundation wherein we see how God reconciles us back unto him. We should not see reconciliation as a legal term or inside legal terms. We should see it as God bringing us back to the original plan. Now, we see here, and I've read in verse 5, that God has wrought us for a certain thing. What has He wrought us for? In verse 4, it says here, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, talking about our bodies, being burdened, not for that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up by life. And then he says in verse 5, Now he that has wrought us for this very thing is God. So what has God wrought us for? That we could have immortal lives, a resurrected body, a glorified body like the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is now, when he was raised up from the grave, reconciled, back unto God. Let me put it this way. Here was the Word of God in heaven, the Son of God, Jesus, the Savior. He came and was incarnated into human flesh, into the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And He actually became sin. So how would He be reconciled? What would reconciliation be? It would only be if He is back where He was from the beginning. If the plan that God had with him is fully accomplished. So reconciliation we would, would mean that God has raised Jesus from the dead and now put a man in the Godhead, this man Jesus. How would a man in the likeness of sinful flesh be reconciled unto God or the book's balance? 
The only way can be a resurrected body that doesn't have sin, that cannot die, that has the ability and the strength to experience the fullness of the person and the Spirit of God and so walk in union with God by the power of God. That would be reconciliation. And now it says here that He has come to reconcile us unto Him. This is what this is all about. Now Paul comes and as he says this, uh, there's something in the back of his mind. And what's in the back of his mind is what, what happened um, in Acts 26. And I want to read that to you. <clears throat> this was Paul now speaking to uh, King Agrippa and he was also before a governor and he was giving his defense there. Um, Governor Festus, he was talking, he was speaking to Festus and King Agrippa and those people, and he was explaining why the Jews wanted to kill him. And he was giving his whole speech there on how Jesus appeared to him. And the speech that he gave was absolutely amazing. He comes and he, and he says that Jesus has appeared to him, and then Jesus said to him, Paul, I want to use you to get the Jews that are blind not to be blind anymore, but to see, as well as the Gentiles. And he says then that he did go and he preached amongst the Jews. And as he preached amongst the Jews, he told them, listen, I want you to repent and to bear the fruit of repentance. Now that repent was to repent of thinking that you are now, that you are part of the covenant by your flesh. But I want you to know that the, the way where, wherein there is life now is belief in Jesus, not in the law and in your flesh anymore. So repent of the way wherein you're seeking life. In other words, don't seek anymore to be part of the covenant by circumcision and by obedience to the law to stay in the covenant. This is by promise. It says, and then bear the fruits of this repentance, meaning don't have this law-driven uh, old covenant life anymore for the old doesn't work and then he said to them and that's why they wanted to kill me they wanted to kill me then he went on and he said in verse 23 he's uh let me read verse 22 there it says having therefore obtained help of god i continued unto this day witnessing both to small and great saying none other things than those things which the prophets and moses did say should come and that is that christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should be raised from the dead and should show light upon the people what light the light of life and to the gentiles so what he's saying is listen and, and, and I'm not going off the point. I'm sticking to this reconciliation. And I want you to understand what was in the mind of Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians 5. He saw the reconciliation as the resurrection. That is what he saw. He didn't see reconciliation as not standing guilty before God and God not punishing us. He saw re uh, reconciliation as the restorative justice of God wherein God restores man unto the place where he's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 1 to 5, Paul talks about the earthly body that wherein we should be clothed upon with immortality. He says, I want to be present with the Lord, talking about present with the Lord as clothed in immortality. But he also said that while I am not having this immortality, I at least have the earnest of the Spirit, meaning the first fruit of the Spirit. And that's why I boldly preach. And he says here that he boldly preached. And what did he say? He said that Jesus, to Festus he said, Jesus was raised from the dead and he was the first to be raised from the dead. And what was Festus's reaction to this? And this he spake of himself. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself or out of your own mind. Much learning has made thee mad. That's what they said. So, <laughs> Paul comes and 
he's got a message that he's trying to defend here in 2 Corinthians 5, and he's trying to say to the people, listen, I believe in the resurrection. And as he said, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe to be clothed upon, all of a sudden, he shifts into defending himself, and he says, you know, if I'm out of my mind, it is before God. But if I'm in my normal mind, it is for you. And what he was actually saying there was, referring to what Festus said, when he talked about the resurrection. And when he said Jesus was raised from the dead and other people will also be raised from the dead, Jew or Gentile, and that he is actually the Messiah over death and over sin, to rule over that and bring life and immortality, Festus said, you're crazy. Here Paul comes now and he's, he's writing to the people in Corinth. The people in Corinth says, Paul, you're crazy. We've heard that you basically were legally declared crazy in your mind by Festus. So he says, listen, this craziness that I have is because of God, if you want to call me crazy, if you want to call this message of the resurrection craziness. And if I'm here with you and doesn't sound that crazy, it's because I'm explaining it in a way that you can understand that. But there is a report that I'm a madman because I believe in the resurrection. And even today it's like that. If you believe in the physical resurrection as well as the physical resurrection of the dead, um, you, you, you kind of frowned upon. What's wrong with you? Much learning has made you mad. Um, and that's what Paul is saying. You're talking about now, and he's talking restoration language. We're just go, going to continue to go through this. And he's talking restoration language. He's talking reconciliation language. And the language that he's talking is all about God restoring man unto the very life of God, making everything new bringing reconciliation, putting man back to where he is supposed to be and back to the original plan and the vision that he had uh, with us. So Paul comes and he says, well, you know, when I, when I live and when I preach my gospel, this is from verse 8 onwards, I am preaching my gospel in a way as if I'm doing account before God or as if I will do account to God. I'm not preaching it to please anybody. I know one day I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I will receive in my body what I've done in my body. So now I want to be pleasing to God and what he basically says is the only thing that will be done in this body is relying upon Christ. I'm not going to do the law. I'm not going to do Judaism. I'm not going to do circumcision. I'm going to do none of those things. What I'll do in this body is believe the gospel. Believe the good news. That is what he is saying. Um, now we're getting into the passage that I really want to get into. He says from verse 14, and I want, if you've got a Bible, read this with me. We're going to read from verse 14 to 20 about. He says, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then all are dead. The all he's talking about here is Jew and Gentile. If one died for both nations, then both nations has died. And that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves or themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So what did Jesus do? He died and he was resurrected. And this message is now the message of reconciliation, wherein he came and he took our death away from us. He took the enslavement to sin away from us by becoming that and conquering that. And as he conquered that in a human body and put the resurrected Jesus in front of all of us, we are now beholding a new man which we can claim, lay claim to. And as we do that, we are now transformed by the Holy Spirit unto this very image that we are beholding. That is what he's saying. He says, and, he, and, and that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves. You know, in Judaism and in the law, you're actually living unto yourself. <coughs> Because it's your power that uses the law to try and save you. He says, but henceforth we should not live unto ourselves, but unto him who died and rose again. So now what we are saying is that life 
determines our life. It's got nothing to do with the law, punishment, or guilt at all. Jesus did want to save us from a guilty conscience or a conscience where we, um, where we are conscious of we are not Jews and we fall short and those kind of things, especially to the Gentiles. And I think in the Jewish perspective, where those people did break the law, that there was a form of guilt, but they would just go and sacrifice a lamb and that would wash their minds for a while again. But it could not save them from the power of that sin. So that's why he came. The whole thing, the whole story of the lamb and the the death of the lamb, the scapegoat and all those things is talking about the redemptive justice, the restorative justice of God, not a punitive justice, but a restorative justice because God has not walked in anger with all of humanity. Imagine this, that if Jesus died for the sins of the world inside a penalty substitutionary atonement logic, then we must say that all of humanity is saved from now. We have to say that because the law does not have the luxury to forgive whenever it wants. The law has to bless should sin be paid. If that person lives by the law or not, especially if we say that we're not under the law anymore, the law is fulfilled. Now listen carefully. We say the law is fulfilled and Jesus paid for our sin. Then we have to conclude under the penalty substitution atonement, universalism. The foundation for universalism, the way I see it and the studies I've made, is penalty substitutionary atonement. But if we talk about the restorative justice of God, where we are restored unto and where it's not a payment, but a life where the power of sin is broken and where relationship through belief is restored, then we can understand what Paul is saying. We can understand how we can have eternal life through faith and why it's important to believe upon the Lord. And all of a sudden, all these scriptures make sense. So we see here... In verse 14, he says, The love of Christ constrains us because if one died, then all are dead, meaning there is no more person that finds his life in connection to the law. And that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth not live themselves, law language, but live them that was risen from the dead. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. So he says, from now on, we know no man after the flesh. That doesn't mean we don't know anybody according to the wrong thing he's done. If somebody comes and he breaks into my studio and steals my cameras, I will know him according to what he's done. If somebody comes and burns down our house, I will know him according to what he's done, definitely. But that is not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is, he says, from now on we're defining no man anymore according to, is he a Jew or is he a Gentile? That is what he's talking about. He says, though we have known Christ after the flesh, we've known Christ as a Jew. He says, henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old law things has passed away. Behold, all things are now become new, and all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. What is this ministry of reconciliation? It is clearly mentioned here when he said, and, and in that he died, he died for all, that they which live should henceforth not live themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So what is the reconciliation? The reconciliation is to have a resurrected human being at the right hand of God that shares in the full life of God. That is the reconciliation. And now he has given unto us this ministry of reconciliation wherein he says, according to verse 19, to witness that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, what does that mean? He says he did not allow those 
people to have the fruit of their trespass, which would be death. He took their death and was raised from the death so that we can have life. That is what it is all about. It is not talking about standing guilty before God. It is talking about our condition. Our condition was a condition of sinful flesh, dying flesh. And he has come to change that condition in becoming a man under sin, under death, being raised from that so that in that resurrected Jesus, all that rely upon him can be blessed for he will then restore all of those who trust and believe upon him into that which God has dreamt for every man. That's also the promise that was made to Abram. He says, and he has committed unto us this word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? This is the word of reconciliation. That you don't have to live by the law anymore, but that you can live in trust of the, the resurrected Jesus. That you don't have to find your identity in and church, I can only speak the law, the language that was written here and it was in the mind of Paul, that you don't become part of the covenant by becoming a Jew or an Israelite through circumcision, but that you are part of the covenant, the very people of God, because God has come and ended this whole thing about Jew and Gentile, and he brought forth a brand new man. And this brand new man represents all of us. And us who are now reconciled with this reconciliation, we receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, now verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as Though God did besiege you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So he says, God has come and given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? The ministry of reconciliation is simply that you don't have to live by the law, but through the resurrection of Jesus, you have eternal life. It's got nothing to do with punishment. It's got to do with restorative justice. It's got to do with a justice which redeems and saves us from oppression. We've seen the justice of God uh, towards the Israelites when they were led out of Egypt. When the blood of Jesus flowed, what happened in the flowing of that blood? The flowing of, uh, or the, fl- the flowing of the blood of the Lamb, what happened? They were led out. Led out of what? Out of bondage. So forgiveness is the deliverance from bondage. It's got nothing to do with God not being angry. It's got nothing to do with God now loving you or God not being angry anymore. We don't sit with a God that had an anger problem. We sit with a God that had an issue at hand and that is how is he going to provide sinless flesh, a sinless human being to man which can include all of them, that through that man, they can all be blessed, free from their works. That is what it's all about. It's got nothing to do about guilty before the law or not. We, we think that God will, if you have not believed correctly, in, believed in Jesus, then he's now going to take out the law and say, well, let me see if you've done it right. And then, ah, oh, and then he will even waste the time of seeing if you've obeyed the law. It doesn't work like that. We don't sit in front of the judgment seat of God wherein he is basically reading your mail or reading whatever you've done wrong or a report of your wrong deeds and judges you accordingly and then says heaven or hell. It doesn't work like that. The way it works is there's two systems or there was only this one system uh, known to man. The other one was always there. Abraham tapped into it and some people believe in that. But... That other system is the one where you trust God and the one is the one where you try through your flesh to have eternal life. Now if you through your own flesh will have eternal life, you have condemned yourself unto death. And that's how it will work. That system will leave you dead in the dust. That's what it will do. But when we believe in the God that raises the dead, what happens? Now we will have eternal life. That's what this, this thing is all about. And when he came to bring reconciliation, he says, I want to bring man back to the system where they simply rely upon me and I want to bring that into fulfillment wherein the nations can be blessed by the resurrection of Jesus. So the reconciliation is 
wherein God says, I have now provided Jesus as an immortal human being, seated at the right hand of God, into whom you look as your reality, from where you have your life. I don't have time to explain all of that, but that is basically it. That is the ministry of reconciliation. And then he goes on and he says here, I plead with you, be reconciled unto God. I said, but didn't God reconcile us? He says, no, he did provide the new man. But now from your side, stop to do the law. And Paul's whole thing about 2 Corinthians 5 is, he started out with God wanted to give, God wants to give us an immortal body. He wants to give, make everything new by his spirit. He says, we don't see that immortal body right now. And I know that you guys have heard a message that I'm crazy in my mind in believing in the resurrection, but I've got great boldness. Although I don't see an immortal body now, uh, and this great boldness I have is because the spirit that will raise me from the dead has now already bringing forth first fruit in my life. And as I see this first fruit, I've got this excitement because I'm seeing the first fruit. I know people think I'm crazy, but I know what I've seen when I saw the resurrection. And I'm expecting this resurrected body from the Lord and that life that he's promised because he has a ministry of reconciling us unto that plan that he's had from the beginning. It's got nothing to do with an angry God whose, whose anger needs to be satisfied or any of those things as pertaining to his people. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got everything to do with a God that restores his people. And that is what all of this is about. <clears throat> he says in verse 21, For he made him to be sin for us, that we... Uh, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, what is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is the righteous act that God had in raising Jesus from the dead. That's what it is. We see that as a law term. We see that as a law term, uh, that, that we might be made the righteousness of God. No, the way we are made the righteousness of God is we are made the equitable deed of God. Righteous, a righteous act is the faithfulness of God manifested towards man. It's got nothing to do with standing clean in front of a law. It's got nothing to do with that. Uh, we must get the law out of our definition of atonement completely. The law talks and prophesied towards what Christ has done. We cannot use the law as an entity. We can only use the law as a shadow. And then we have to use Christ as the substance. Amen. So now he says here that he was made sin. He was made weak and he became and, and he died why? So that we might have the resurrection and as God brings forth resurrection life into those that believe upon him, then everybody will be able to see the, the, the righteous act of God or the righteousness of God. Amen. If I go and I'm going to end off with this and there's a man outside in the street that has got no home, nothing, and I give him a home and I bless him and I love him, and everybody sees him, then he will be my righteousness. They would look at him, and they will see the righteousness of Bertibritz, because he was good to him. And that is the context wherein we should define righteousness. Church, I want to challenge you, even our grace preachers, I want to challenge you in, to go and study out the different atonement theories, and to go and see the restorative justice of God, because that makes sense. That gives, that opens up the Bible to a, to, to a book that starts to make sense. You'll find so many more passages make sense. You will start to read this whole thing, the, the whole story. Even like I said in Genesis in the beginning, the creation story there is actually Christ's story now. And when you read Genesis, you must, you must see it as the pointing now to the creation when God is creating a temple in the earth where he is living amongst his people where we are the, the, the temple, the tabernacle of God where he dwells with us, where he fellowships with his people where he's got relationship with his people and he's never been angry he's a loving God but does God, doesn't God have any wrath? 
Yes, he does, but we can't talk about that now because I've already almost preached for an hour. Um, uh, there are messages on my website where you can go and have a look at the wrath of God and what it truly is. I thank God for his wrath because his wrath, in his wrath he said that the only way unto life is him and no other way can stand and he will not give life to any other way. That's the way it is. And in his anger, the Bible says, what did he come and do? He removed the bondage. His anger was not towards you. It was towards the satanic system, the, uh, the accuser system that brought bondage and lies to people. And in his vengeance, he came and brought forth truth. And that is Jesus. Jesus Christ, as much as what he is the Savior, he is the vengeance of God on the system where we find life by our works. Glory to God. Well, I trust that this has given you some food for thought and that it has blessed you. Thank you so much for watching this. Know that you are loved by God. And then next week, we're going to have a special Mother's Day message. And I want to just appeal to everybody that is watching to say, let's put this, everyone in our web church, let's put this day aside where we gather as families around uh, the computer or put it on TV or whatever. And we're going to have a special message for mothers. And the mother's going to be so blessed and I would love for the families to be together, watch this together. And uh, in the week, I will make a short video and explain to you what we're going to do. We're going to bless the mothers uh, and just show to them how special they are. Glory to God. Thank you so much for watching. And God bless.